consider really part and parcel of this problem, but you may not see it that way, and I respect that. So you can take this or leave it, or you can put what I say into your own frame of reference, and um, that would be fantastic. I actually think this is a really important part of the eating disorder journey into that place of bondage and pain, and also the way out. You know, I'm talking about a spiritual dimension to these disorders. And personally, I believe that we have a spiritual dimension to all our life. I don't think we sit in a vacuum. I don't think the material world is all that exists. This is my belief, and I'm, it's all I can come to you with. And, um, you know, I see eating disorders as a problem affecting the whole person, physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, relationally, spiritually. I see it as a whole health problem and I feel like it needs a whole health solution. And I'm trained in a number of dimensions. I'm trained in the physical health sciences as a physical, physical therapist, physiotherapist. I'm trained and registered as a professional counselor in the mental health arena, in the emotional health arena. I have had training, I've worked as an ordained minister at one part of my life. Um, I'm no longer in that position, but um, I was uh, ordained in a place where I was working as a uh, pastor and I was working in a pastoral care department doing counselling and supervision and training. So I have experience and training in all these areas. I'm not claiming to be an expert in all these areas. I'm saying that I am informed, I am educated and I am someone who has hungered to find <coughs> excuse me, my own way out of that eating disorder space. And for me, a very big part of my recovery, I would say the absolute foundation of my recovery and also actually a very big part of my journey into the eating disorder had a spiritual element. So let me just try and unpack that a little bit here for you. And what does that mean in this bonus video called supervision? Okay, so first of all, I do believe that we are spiritual beings. I believe that we are more than just flesh and blood. I think we are all those things. I think we have a spirit. I think we have a soul, which is our mind, our will, our emotions. And you know, as far as I know, you cannot find an anatomical address for these things. And yet they are real substance inside us and in our experience and in our way of doing life and interacting with others animals and environment and people on our planet and you know you can measure um, emotional uh, activity and uh, you can you can measure these things with neural activity you can measure these things so they're very real but I think we are hard-pressed to actually put exactly where they fit in the physical structure so what I'm saying there is I believe that we are more than just flesh I believe that we and we're more than just you know, I think we have a psycho-spiritual, uh, a lot that we talk about in this area as being purely psychological in our thinking. It is in our thinking, but I think it goes deeper than that. Um, and I'm probably not able to explain that really well, except that, you know, science is finding out more and more as we go. And, and so, from what I understand of science, it is supporting rather than refuting the existence of spirit, the existence of um, 
God, an intelligent design. I believe in God. I come from a Christian faith. I haven't always held that position. In fact, I would say in the early part of my journey into anorexia, um, definitely my religious beliefs, particularly in early high school, I started to get very superstitious and fearful about God. I felt like I'd, I'd heard in my earlier life that he was good, which was nice, but I started to get this sense that I had to be good, perfect, to keep God happy and keep him on side. And as I looked at things happening in my family that were concerning for me, particularly with my mum's stress and, you know, things that she would say about leaving or not surviving, that really hit my heart because I'd already experienced that drowning situation where I was feeling responsible and guilty for someone possibly drowning earlier in my life. So anyway, I had a whole lot going on, but in my early high school years, when I started to take on board some religious ideas that felt more fearful and superstitious about God being kind of like a big guy with a big stick who was going to hit me up the side of the head if I got things wrong. And as I said before in one of the other videos, I think it was in the talking about the map, I really do see that the dieting solution and religiosity and it, it kind of really maps together because there's a legalism involved in that diet restrictive solution. It's black and white, good and bad, you're worthwhile or worthless, you're on the diet or off the diet, you're good or bad and if you're bad you have to make up for it, you have to pay penance. You know there's a real legalistic, what I call religious, I kind of personally I don't like being, people will say you're religious, I don't like that term very much because it speaks to me of being bound and being fearful and being driven and being these rules which in my heart, in my understanding, my faith and my understanding of God now um, that has been growing since my mid to late 20s is a God that is loving and good and relational, absolutely relational. And um, it's not about rules to, to get somewhere, it's about getting somewhere, having something inside us, a, a, a solid base of worth and acceptance and security that actually transcends this space and time, which, let's face it, we live in uncertain times, we live in an uncertain world. Bad things happen and we can't control them. So what do we do with that, those feelings of insecurity? And you know what, we all experience rejection. It is tough. It's tough. Rejection really hurts. It really hurts. And you may have a history of rejection or neglect or abandonment or criticism or annihilation. That stuff deep in the heart needs healing. And it can really set us up to view life in certain ways and to behave in certain ways. And in my own life, I've just got to say, look, I was going to talk to you about a, a, an, an article here by Stephen Towers, who's a very well-known expert in the area of eating disorders here in Australia. And it's, a, it's an article about religiosity and spirituality in relation to disordered eating and body image concerns. And it talks about the fact that there is extensive literature on the fact that uh, religiosity and spirituality have very protective factors in the mental health realm. And it defines, um, you know, let me just see what have I said here. It defines spirituality like, that. you know, what's the difference? I, I think we are spiritual beings, but this is a worthwhile definition, a difference. Um, they've talked about spirituality being a personal quest for understanding answers to ultimate questions of life, 
life, its meaning, and the relationship with the transcendent. Um, whereas they define religiosity as a system of organised beliefs, practices, symbols, rituals to facilitate closeness to the transcendent. So a lot of people have a spiritual or religious background. You know, we don't exist in a vacuum. We all believe something. I love this guy, Rob Bell. He talks about the fact that we all have faith. We all believe something. It just depends what we believe. You may be a theist. You may believe in God. You may be an atheist. You may have no belief in God. But your beliefs will absolutely shape your reality and shape the way you, you, you view these problems and how you resolve these problems that affect the whole person. So for me, and what I just want to bring to you at this point, is just to say, look, I really do believe there is a spiritual dimension in these problems. I know for a fact that the fear I experienced at the bottom of the scales in my anorexia was in my view and my experience and my experience with other people who have suffered through anorexia. Um, and, you know, if you have suffered through a different space, I'd love to hear about that. But I know, you know, in my book, Illuminating Anorexia, I talk a lot about the voices. Um, I really unpack that. I unpack that dialogue because in my experience, there was more than one voice. You know, the internal critic is a voice that we're all probably familiar with. And it's kind of, it, we, it morphs out of all the authority figures, mums and dads and teachers and aunts and uncles and religious leaders and political leaders. It's that sort of do's, don'ts, good, bad that we take in as we grow up. We internalise. And so when we're behaving and when our self-esteem is low, that internal critic says, oh, don't do that or do that, you know. And some of the, some of the rules that of our internal critic can be quite helpful, you know. Don't share your heart with people that are not trustworthy. That's a good rule. Um, look to the right and left before you cross the road. That's a good rule. For Susie, for myself, in my journey, some of the rules that I developed were don't be selfish, don't ever put your needs in front of anyone else's. Now that rule or belief that my internal critic got in on in my anorexia, that was very helpful to me at a certain point in my development because I didn't want to upset the apple cart at home. I was concerned about adding stress to my mum's load. So to not be selfish, to consider my mum first, to put her needs before my own, that is not a healthy way to exist long term. And even, you know, that was not a healthy system. But that's life. That is our family systems. That is our dynamics. But when I took that into my, my more adult life, don't be selfish, don't ever put your needs in front of anyone else's, guess what? That is going to cause tremendous problems. So some of, the, some of the beliefs that we grow up with that have helped us in a certain place and time may not help us later on. And look, there's a lot to say as you can hear. I'm maybe getting a bit off track. What I wanted to say is in my experience going down the scales with the anorexia, there was a voice that really started to ramp up as I got lower and lower down the scales. You know, in that restriction, I mean, it's physiological, it's psychological, but I think there's a spiritual dimension there as well because I experienced it and I've experienced the difference, and I've worked with others who've had that experience as well, and I've seen that be a powerful help to people in this space. And that's all I'm trying to offer you here, is something else for you to consider. Whether you want to take it on board, how much you want to take it on board, whether you want to morph it into your own frame, 
all up to you. Your right to do whatever you like. But I'm just sharing you the best I have. And I know that when I travelled down the scales, that voice that had been an internal critic earlier in the journey became this annihilating accuser. And it ramped up, the, you know, it's like turning up the volume and turning up the authority. The more I bowed the knee, if you like, to this accuser that said, that basically said a whole lot of things to me about my worth and value and that I needed to do things I want to make myself good enough. There's another great picture in my book about the treadmill. And I'm going to, I'm going to have to share that somewhere too. If you, if you read the book, you'll see it. Um, yeah. Maybe I can share it in another video. But anyway, that voice ramped up to a point where it was all-consuming and it could drive me at the crack of dawn or late at night to get up and exercise because I hadn't been able to um, get rid of calories that I'd consumed during the day. And I'd had to go to bed in the red and I had to pay back for that um, failure. And the accuser was all about that, accusing me, you're not good enough, you need to eat less and do more and exercise away every calorie that you've expended and prove your worth, prove your right to take up space. But as I got further down the scales, that accuser kind of morphed into, so the accuser, in my view, is like the internal critic on steroids. It's in a league of its own. If you've experienced the internal critic, that's kind of like that much. The accuser is in a league of its own. And as I got further down the scales, that accuser started to morph into this other voice. It's like it had two parts. One was an accusing part and one was a um, tempting, tauntress part. So here I was, anorectic, hungry, fearful, anxious Michelle, and I got the accuser telling me, don't eat, exercise. And then I've got this tempter saying, oh, but surely you deserve something. You've been so good. You deserve some food. And you know, that's the truth. Like she's playing with the truth. It's like, yeah, I do. But if I take an inch, she will take a mile and lead me into a binge that is beyond my ability to accept. And then, oops, sorry, hit something over there. And then the accuser will jump in on the action and, and make me pay back. And it's like, I am in this fight with these two voices. There's voices, more than one voice. And you know, when they talk about the eating disorder voice, I think unless you've been in that space, it may be quite hard for you to understand how destructive and annihilating it is. I think there's a spiritual element involved. Yes, fear travels on our thoughts. Fear is in our emotions. But the fear that I met at the bottom of the scales felt superhuman. It really did. It felt super. It was beyond my ability to control. It was beyond my ability to, uh, it, it, it just wanted to, it felt like it was going to annihilate me. It honestly did. And you know what actually started to get rid of that fear? A couple of things, and it's in my story, Illuminating Anorexia. But one thing was to beat the lie that was at the base of my anorexia, and that was that I didn't deserve to live unless I was perfect. It's a perfection lie. It's a lie that says, really, you can't be perfect. So it ends up saying, that lie ends up saying to you, you don't deserve to exist. And by that stage, you're weak and emaciated and you've been running so hard and for so long and you're so despairing that it's pretty easy to give up the fight at that point. And people lose their life with this battle. And you know what comes against that lie is truth. And the truth is you do deserve to live. 
And I don't know what your base for that belief is, but my base is in my spiritual and faith space. I believe you were created with worth and value. I believe you deserve to take up space. Despite your experience, whatever your experience has been, value is your birthright. Absolutely, unconditionally. And the God I know created you to experience love. And you may not have had, you know, there may have been experiences in your life that have really come against you feeling lovable and worthwhile and secure. But the God I've come to know really brings security that can travel deep, 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 deep down into the root system of our very being so that we feel secure despite what's going on around us. The earth may change, the mountains may fall into the heart of the sea, bad things may happen, and one day we will die. But there is a place that in I have experienced, experienced now, that is really secure. And that is worth everything. It's like a peace that passes understanding. And life isn't simple for anyone. But in this area, the eating disorder area, the things that I think really drive us are a lack of self-acceptance and a lack of core security. And our experience in life may have led us to feel not okay, not safe, secure in some way. And I can tell you for a fact that the eating disorder solution to that problem, the restricting cycle, makes that worse, actually ramps up the lie, ramps it up to such a degree that it feels like it's going to annihilate you. You need truth to overcome the lie. You need light to illuminate the darkness. And you need power, strength inside to shut the the mouth of that liar and say, that's a lie. And you need support. You need other people that can speak, not just like, oh, I think, you know, I remember reading a book in early, you know, I'd hurt my back. This is part of my recovery story. But I remember reading a book by a guy called Thomas Harris. And he said, you know, we, we, we can't prove that people are in poor, 